Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. For most organizations working on innovation, their emphasis is usually on incremental horizon one type of initiatives. Far less common is the truly disruptive moonshot initiatives that are unlikely to work, but if they do, will be utterly transformative. My guest today is Kathy Hannon, and for seven years, she was a product manager for the rapid evaluation team at Google X, tasked with product development and diligence for some of their biggest moonshot initiatives. One of those initiatives, she eventually spun out into Dandelion, a home geothermal company where she now serves as CEO. And in this conversation, we discuss what Kathy learned during her time at X, how organizations can be more successful with disruptive technology. And we also get into detail on Dandelion and the massive opportunity that geothermal presents in changing the way that we heat our homes. Uh, I learned a lot from Kathy in this conversation. I think you will too. So with that, let's go to Kathy. So Kathy, thank you for being here. Why don't we start with your time at Google X? Uh, so for folks who, who don't know what that is, why don't we start with maybe what, what Google X even is and then, and then what you were doing there? Absolutely. So X is a division within Alphabet where they try to bring together very technical, scientific, sort of inventor type of people mm-hmm. with entrepreneurs and business-minded folks to try to find really huge technology opportunities. So the, the most famous one, for example, is the self-driving car. Okay. And this, the signature opportunity that X is looking for is something that could be a really transformative business Mm -hmm. that can be good for society and also generate a tremendous amount of value. And did you come in from more of the business side or were you more on the, on the technical side or what was your sort of background kind of leading up to that? Well, I was lucky because I actually came in in a very junior position. I was helping with marketing, which is ironic because at the time it was a completely secretive X was very confidential. Uh-huh. So my friends would joke that I had the easiest job in the world because I was marketing for a very secretive organization. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, got it. But it actually wasn't that easy of a job. Um, nope. But it was great for me. It was great for me because I got to, you know, I was still in the very beginning of my career. So I got to really learn and grow with X, which grew a lot during my time there. And then eventually I ended up in this more product position that we call rapid evaluation within X. Yeah, that'd be really interesting. What, 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 what was sort of the high level process for kind of surfacing and kind of validating these sorts of things? Was it, were there, were you using like lean, you know, kind of methodologies or were there frameworks that, that you used? I mean, it sounds like with some of these it's real kind of sciencey stuff. And so, you know, at least some of the techniques that maybe you would, you would typically think of might not be relevant, but what was, what was that process sort of at a real high level? Yeah, exactly. Well, the process is exactly what we would call rapid evaluation. So the way we would ask that question that you just posed is like, how do you quickly evaluate ideas to see if they have potential as moonshots or these like really big technology based opportunities? Yeah. And the thing we looked for moonshots across three dimensions. So there was, is this actually a big problem? Mm -hmm. So is the problem that your idea solves or addresses, uh, adequately huge. And then the second, the second angle is, is it a technology driven solution? So Mm -hmm. there are lots of really big problems like, um, world hunger perhaps. 
And like there are some technology solutions to that problem, but there are a lot of non-technology solutions, like political solutions. So X was primarily focused on the technology solutions. And then not only is it a technology solution, but is that technology new? Or I mean, it may be another way of saying it on a trend line Mm -hmm. that seems to be in our favor. So that is the most abstract. So maybe I'll use the self-driving car as an example. Okay. The problem of transportation and traffic-related deaths, inefficiency of single consumer vehicles, like all of these things, clearly like so many people use cars and experience these issues that it's it's a huge problem. A self-driving car is clearly a technology solution right? because it is a car. Yeah. Uh, and then is it sort of a radically new technology? The way you would think about that with, re- with respect to the self-driving car is during the time that that project has existed, mm-hmm. things like computer vision and sensors and computation power and like mm-hmm. all of these things have been on these trend lines yeah. where those technologies have gotten so much better so rapidly. Mm-hmm. So it's made self-driving cars so much more possible seeming today than they were when the project started. And that's where you want to be with one of these giant ideas. And then even back then, but even at that point, they probably saw to your point, they saw, you know, we can't do this right now, but we're anticipating some of these kind of innovations around computer vision and to your point around processing power. Like we can see that the not too distant future that this thing might be possible. Is that right? That's exactly right. Because you always want your business you want the wind at your back, Mm -hmm. you know? And so like Google itself really benefited from the fact that the internet was exploding as Google came into existence and it got to really, you know, it, it rode that trend as well as any company ever has to answer your original question. What do you look, how do you find these ideas? I think you can look along that dimension, like what technologies are really changing quickly? Like Mm -hmm. what do we believe will be, rapidly more possible in the world than it is today. And you can also look from the perspective of what are the biggest problems in society. Yeah. The whole design thinking thing is, is all the rage right now. And, and it seems like philosophically they're starting from the premise of to your, to your point around like customer need, and then they're backing into what are some ways that we could solve it. It's, I mean, it seems, it seems like, just by virtue of the tech question that, that maybe you're, you're starting more from the, Hey, here is a, um, new to the world technological advancement. What are some of the problems that it could theoretically solve? Like, like in terms of like, if if there was a linear progression to how you're trying to kind of solve for that Venn diagram, are you starting on the tech side or is it still, are you still typically starting from pain and then trying to back into technology solutions that might address that pain? Does that question make sense? It does. It completely does make sense. And I think that there's not a right answer. Like I almost, my process is more to try to hold those two ideas in my mind Mm -hmm. at the same time and Mm -hmm. like, and then try to use that to come up with ideas for the overlap. Because if you kind of have a mental model of technology trends, yeah. And then you have your own interests and your own passion around what problems are most meaningful. Mm -hmm. The whole um, creative process is about trying to connect 
those things. Yeah. And it's really hard. Like, it's, <laughs> it's not easy, of course, or, or it would be much easier to solve the biggest problems in the world. But I think that's where the creativity really comes into it. Yeah. Is, is there a, was there a kind of an emphasis on to kind of uncover customer pain? Was it mostly like secondary kind of research gathering methods or was it primary and even like ethnographic types of things? Like, like how, how were you surfacing opportunities on the pain side? We did a lot of different things, and and I think getting out of the building certainly, certainly was, you know, that was encouraged, and I'm really thankful for that value at X because I I think it is just like the best way mm-hmm. to really learn. Yeah, but it was a combination of that and getting in touch with experts throughout the world who knew the most about these topics, which is another huge advantage of being at a place like X. You really have access to a lot of those thinkers and scientists, but like ideas can really come from anywhere. So for the idea that became Dandelion, there was a software engineer working at Google out of the New York office who really promoted this idea that geothermal heat pumps were the, you know, he wrote an email that basically made the case, laid out a case that geothermal heat pumps had the potential to be the most impactful energy transformation mm-hmm. product mm-hmm. of our time. And wow. it was such a bold, it was such a bold uh, argument, yeah. you know, that yeah. it really, um, and so detailed too, that it really caught caught my attention because I li- my job was literally to evaluate what could be the transformative technologies yeah. in our day. And I focused on the environment and energy. Okay. So that's really what started me on the journey that would lead to Dandelion was looking into this case that this gentleman made for geothermal and trying to pick it apart and understand it. Yeah. Was he even in, in X? Was he a part of X or was he just an oh. engineer in another part of the company? He was just an a software engineer in another part of the company. So wow. in this case, like I, I didn't even really know that much about what geothermal heat pumps were. Yeah. And that problem, even though I grew up in a house that used fuel oil, sort of like our target house for mm-hmm. Dandelion, mm-hmm. I didn't learn about the problem through my own experience in this. Well, I, I had a lot of empathy for people who have expensive, dirty heating fuels, but like, mm-hmm. that's not how this idea came about. It just happened to be this software engineer who sent the email. So, which is wow. just to say, these ideas really came from everywhere. I mean, was that just sort of a needle in a haystack thing, or is that baked into the organization in terms of just ran- random folks from different parts of the organization? whose interests may have no relationship to the job that they're doing, have a mechanism to surface these kinds of opportunities. I mean, it it seems like a relatively unique story that you wouldn't necessarily hear inside of most other organizations because of silos or because it's not accepted that, that someone like that could share that kind of stuff or that information would never have gotten to you. It seems like in a lot of organizations, was there, was there a deliberate sort of policy or setup that allowed that to happen? I do think it's cultural and it's so Google. Yeah. It's so googly <laughs> because yeah. you know one thing about the culture at Google is it's very bottoms up. So like a lot of ideas originate from not from the top but like more anyone kind yeah. of at the company is just able to 
I don't, it's easier in some, I don't want to overstate it. Like it's easier in some parts of the company than others and for certain types of roles to do this than others. But I like the 20% project model mm-hmm. and that legacy is alive and well. And so, yeah, in this case, this email had nothing to do with this guy's job at Google. Wow. But we just had a listserv for people interested in energy and he just posted it there because it's his passion. And I happened to be on that list too. And it led to this project. And I think it's not such a unique story within Google. That's really Um, cool. And it was a huge privilege to work there because of that. Because like I think if you're the type of person, especially earlier in your career where I think for me at that time, like it, in most organizations, I wouldn't have felt as empowered to to pitch an idea, get support for it, and then run with it. Mm-hmm. You know, like what mm-hmm. what an amazing opportunity to have been given. Yeah, totally. How how did it go from okay, here's an here's a posting on a listserv where here's a big and it, and it sounds like you know he made a very cogent case for the the need for the technology kind of aspect. So maybe, maybe that was sufficient to check that box, but how did, how did you go about kind of checking the other boxes? Like what, what, what was the process of going from listserv post to maybe the two of you to connecting to, okay, we're going to, we're going to do something about this. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, at that so that early, early, early stage seed of an idea where it wasn't even really an idea, like mm-hmm. that list, that, that email basically raised, made, made me take a mental note of learn more about geothermal heat pumps and understand if they're really that big of a deal. Right. Uh, at that stage, like I, I would be evaluating many ideas. So at that moment, there wasn't anything that made this one stand out. It was just like one of many things that I was learning about as part of my job. Um, in order to learn more, you know, I wasn't I wasn't convinced that the problem was big because on the surface, even if somebody says geothermal heat pumps could transform society, there are a lot of reasons that that person might be wrong. You know, like what if they're too expensive and so any number of things could transform society (laughs) like they don't because they're too expensive or just there were so many what ifs to look into. So we did a few things to, to start to dig into, to just clarify, you know, what's the real potential here. And, And one of those things was to understand how relevant geothermal heat pumps could be. The way we approached it was, okay, let's imagine they could cost any amount in this range and presumably like the cheaper they are the more homeowners will save money if they switch from their current heating situation to geothermal so what we wanted to do was look at oh sorry i should mention geothermal heat pumps have a similar property to most renewable products where they're more expensive than conventional options up front Okay. But they tend to be much less expensive to operate. Got it. So once you have one installed, it's almost always cheaper to run than the other options around. It's just about like, can you afford that initial price of getting it installed? And does the amount that you save by running it justify the initial purchase? Got it. So thinking about it that way, what we wanted to do is understand Let's say if everyone in the world just switched from whatever they're using now to geothermal, 
who would save the most money? Like how much value are we really creating? Because then we could start to understand, given that amount of value, would it justify purchasing this product at a reasonable price? Mm -hmm. And by reasonable price, I mean a price that we could possibly imagine this product being sold at. Okay. So um, does that make sense? Yeah, Yeah, it does. Okay. So we did this analysis and you have to, there's a lot of data input. It's sort of like a, just a data analysis problem. And what we found was shocking actually in terms of how much money people could save by switching to geothermal heat pumps. People in the Northeast and throughout the country, but concentrated in the Northeast, spend billions and billions of dollars each year just to heat their homes. Hmm. Like it's just an incredibly large market. So Mm -hmm. just to make that more specific, if you just look at people using fuel oil and propane, which are just two types of heating fuels, and you just look at the Northeast, and you just look at single family homes. So you're already cutting your market way down from like every building in the world to just homes in the Northeast using fuel oil and propane. Okay. That market, these, these people are spending over $18 billion each year on that fuel oil and propane, not including what they're spending on their furnace or their air conditioner. It's like purely on fuel. So that's the scale, right? It's like, and of course you can, sell geo not just in the northeast but throughout much of the u.s and canada and europe and china you know like (laughs) lots of markets throughout the world and of course you wouldn't limit yourself to just fuel oil and propane it's just a useful starting place because consumers tend to have a lot of pain associated with those products Uh, They're very expensive and they're annoying to use. With that level of value that you can generate by switching people onto geothermal heat pumps, you can actually, like, it's a cost-effective option for people at a price point around 30, like, if you can get, if you can get people to a price point of um, under $20,000, then it will pencil for the homeowner. Mm -hmm. in a lot of cases and because of the existing policy environment Mm -hmm. that means you could get to a list price around Mm 30,000 and then with all the available incentives it would make a just a really there'd be a clear economic case for it and even though geothermal I mean 30,000 sounds very expensive it, it was being sold typically for about twice that or more yeah but we could see is 30k realistic as a starting point? Okay. Obviously, you would want to bring it down over time. From a willingness to pay perspective, or from a can we actually deliver? Can we can we create a solution that allows us to deliver this more cost effectively from a technological perspective? Like more the latter. So it's okay. like we could see that this is a very niche market. At even though geothermal had this tremendous potential. Mm-hmm. to save so much money for so many people. Got it. It was nonetheless like a very tiny niche market and these systems were being sold from anywhere from 60K to 100K and up. So super expensive. Yeah. So even with all the value they created, they were just so expensive up front that no, no one could afford them. So the question was like, why? Yeah. Why are they so expensive? Is it a technology problem? If so, 
how, what technology do you create and like, how does that impact your ability to mainstream this product? Mm -hmm. Stepping back um, for for people that don't know what G like, are having a hard time visualizing uh, how this even works, you know, versus like, probably they can visualize like solar panels on their roof or whatever. What is, what is a setup for, for, for a homeowner to implement geothermal? Like, what does it even look like? Yeah, it's a great question. Geothermal, one of its advantages, but also like in some ways advantages, in some ways disadvantages, this is almost invisible. So you have what are called ground loops and they're just plastic pipes, thin plastic pipes that go vertically down into your yard, Okay. but they're, they're buried. So once they've been installed, they're under your yard, you can't see them. Okay. But they're under there, and they're go, they go into the house, usually through the, the wall of the basement. And they connect to your heat pump, which usually sits where your furnace used to be and looks kind of like a furnace. And that heat pump is using those ground loops to extract and concentrate heat from the ground to heat your home in the winter. And then it can take heat out of your house like an air conditioner does and push it into the ground in the summer. And it also can create hot water. So it's just a very, it's a, it's a way of moving heat between the earth and your house. One question that people often have is, okay, but the earth isn't that hot, right? Like if you're just under your yard, it's like typically around 50 degrees once you get deep enough. Okay. And obviously you probably want to heat your house to higher than 50 degrees in the winter. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But the way, the way a heat pump works is it's not just making your house the same temperature as the ground. It's literally like collecting heat from the ground. Okay. And then um, running it through a compressor. So you're boosting the temperature to around 120 degrees typically and then blowing that hot air throughout your house. So oh. these homeowners with these systems, you use the thermostat like you would with any other heating system. Yeah. It's just the source of your heat is yeah. renewable instead of um, the product of uh, fuel combustion. Got it. Unlike you know, a piece of software or a lot of things that people typically think of when they think of um, bringing kind of new products to market. And certainly, you know, when they think of a company like Google, you know, they probably think of software. Um, this is a hardware solution and it, it sounds like there's multiple components to it and all that kind of stuff. So what, what does like the MVP of something like this look like both in terms of like validating, validating willingness to pay before kind of going all in and investing in all of the hardware and things like that. Um, and, and the new product development of kind of creating a, a technological solution that can actually do that, but then, um, but also in terms of like delivering it to customer, like were there were there beta customers, and how did you go about kind of figuring out that whole process of actually going in and doing the install and all that kind of stuff? Like, what what was that process like? Well, you're exactly right. You need a way of testing the value proposition, testing the market understanding what customers actually want before you invest in creating all of this new product and hardware and you know these things that have these very long or i would say relative to software long timelines for um for launching so what we did was we actually the first thing we did as a company was we launched a pilot with an off-the-shelf heat pump. So it wasn't 
our own product. It was like we just selected a really high quality but expensive geothermal heat pump and partnered with a company that could install it and designed the process, like the customer experience from start to finish, and then sold it at a price point we knew we could meet with our own equipment. Mm -hmm. So like a limited pilot just to see, will people actually want to buy this? And will they have a good experience with it? Because we don't want to invest the time and the money and the resource into building a product until we really know that we're going to be building a product people want. Right. Right. And so we we launched that in the summer of 2017, and we launched it only in upstate New York, so specifically in the Albany area okay. of upstate New York. And and was that because was that because of uh, high concentration of of homes that were kind of using the those dirty fuels that would be a good kind of test bed mm-hmm. for it? Is that why? Well, certainly that is that is exactly why we decided to base the company in New York. New York is to geothermal what California is to solar. It's just this like very highly concentrated state full of customers who could save a lot of money by Mm -hmm. switching to geothermal. Yeah. And it's like a great place to have a startup. So those two things both exist here. Mm -hmm. But the Albany area in particular, we, we had a very limited geographical area because while we wanted to prove that there was a strong market demand or at least see what the market demand would be, we were also, um, you know, we're selling this off the shelf system. Yeah. It didn't make sense to launch it too broadly because it sure. wasn't really our end product. It was our test. Well, and even so, I mean, it seems sale. like from a network compression perspective, uh, you know, you, you have, you have install techs and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. I mean, it, yeah. It's a real world product. So yeah. it's like it, the tighter you can be in terms of your geological or sorry, geographical footprint the more efficient so we ended up being we ended up generating much more demand than we were able to service like in some ways the pilot was extremely successful because we we were able to definitively show market demand for this product and sort of prove to ourselves and to our investors that Yes, if you could provide geothermal heating at a price point that actually makes sense for normal people mm-hmm. and not just the very wealthy, people are thrilled to have an alternative to fuel oil yeah. or to their existing heating system. Yeah. So we were, you know, we we sold um, beyond our operational capacity and then had the problem that you kind of want to have, which is sure. yeah. how do we grow quickly enough to meet the demand? And that led us also to start investing in manufacturing our own heat pump. And that that heat pump both had the features and capabilities and monitoring and control system that we knew would work best on a mainstream geothermal product. Yeah. But it also um, was designed for the mainstream. Like it's designed to be very durable Mm -hmm. to fit most homes. Yeah just like be optimized for pragmatism as opposed to a very, very high end luxury customer. I see. Got it. Is there by virtue of, I'm not, I, it just occurred to me, you know, you were mentioning kind of feature sets and, and monitoring and things like that. You know, a lot of companies have this 
they, they, they have legacy kind of business models and legacy tech, and they're trying to kind of figure out how to take advantage of things like data, you know, predictive maintenance or things like that. By virtue of being inside of an organization like Google, like is that something that was sort of baked into your all's DNA kind of from the outset, or is it even, is it even relevant for something like this? I think it was definitely that perspective of connected devices and using data to improve the customer experience. And those ideas have taken hold so strongly in some industries, but lag a little bit in others. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that residential heating and cooling is one of the the industries that have not embraced those ideas quite as quickly. Sure. So, so I do think that, we approached heating and cooling from a perspective that's different than yeah. what tends to be on the market today. Like one, one thing that I, you don't typically think about, but like if you're in this industry as I am, you mm-hmm. do think about is just like oh. your heating system in your house is essential for happiness and comfort Yeah. in especially in the winter. And like every homeowner has that story of the furnace breaking on Christmas Eve or the, the furnace breaking and the water pipe freezes and you get a flood or like whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And, and it's kind of crazy that we have monitoring on things that are like so much less important that but no one has any monitoring on on that system. Like yeah. why is it that your furnace fails unexpectedly so often? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's that question. type of question where you're just like, obviously this thing should have monitoring yeah. and it should tell you if there's a problem before it fails, yeah. because that will save everyone a lot of trouble. Yeah, totally. And so that's what we made. And, and when we were thinking about our own heat pump, we, we added that. Yeah. So yeah, there were a lot of things like that, that I think coming from Google and then my co-founder James came from solar city, Tesla, just the different companies that employees have come from, they tend to, to bring those ideas. Sure. Like how can we really make heating and cooling a, a modern consumer product? Yeah. So, I mean, along those lines, I mean, were there, were there similar kind of implications in terms of things like go to market and channels that maybe you were using to acquire customers or brand like brand and how you, <laughs> you know, how you, how you look and feel to the, to the customer relative to maybe who they're the kinds of folks that they're used to dealing with. Like what, what other, were there other areas where that, where that you kind of saw that manifest itself? All sorts of them. And like one example I think is just even the name dandelion. So yeah. when you look at, what's typical in heating and cooling. Yeah, Bob's. <laughs> exactly. It yeah. tends to be very literal names. So yeah. like if we were going to go the traditional route, we would have named the company Kathy and James's Geothermal <laughs> Heating Company. And then we would have fit right it's catchy. in. It's catchy. Yeah. No, that's awesome. <laughs> but we called it Dandelion. So it's, yeah. it's already with something as basic as that. I mm-hmm. think it is a departure from yeah. the norm. Yeah. It struck me initially as it would be more of kind of an educational sale in terms of kind of getting people relative to what they're used to. Like, were there any any lessons that you kind of learned around when you're kind of trying to go to market with something that is such like, I have to educate you about what this even is before I can get you to want to, you know, um, even consider it. Like anything that you learned there around trying to make an educational sale from a go-to-market perspective? Oh, I learned so much because... You're, you're absolutely right. It's a very educational sale. Yeah. 
I mean, let's think like where to even begin. I would say that I do think the huge market size, like to the point where where Google X tends to look for the biggest problems. Mm-hmm. One reason for that is if you're going after a giant market, it's just easier because like yeah. there are so many houses yeah. in New York. There are, you know, over 2 million houses using fuel oil mm-hmm. in, in New York. And that's just one state, right, that we can start in. But yeah. like it allows us to we can say, Hey, we're selling geothermal. And because there's so many people, mm-hmm. it's more likely that a few of them will take that chance yeah. to sit down and learn. Right. Yeah. So that's yeah. one thing I would say. Another thing is, um, it really helps us that fuel oil is such a unpleasant reality for mm-hmm. so many people. Yeah. Like it really helps to go after like these, these people are experiencing a real problem. Yeah. Like the the prices, the cost is super high. It fluctuates with the price of oil, so um, very difficult to yeah. financially plan. And you have to arrange for a truck to deliver what is essentially diesel mm-hmm. to a tank in your basement. And so I think people are often motivated by the desire to get away from heating oil yeah. as much as they're they're motivated by the desire to get geothermal. And and that's helpful because people don't really know what geothermal is yet. So right. it's like that that was good. And then of course the last set of things I think many people who have experience with sales would just know because they're very basic, but to just really get clarity on who is your customer and how what are the benefits mm-hmm. of your product yeah. and like how can you really be articulate and straightforward about what those are. Yeah. You mentioned investors a little a little bit ago um, that you're either venture backed or otherwise kind of invested in organizational kind of innovation teams. I know one of the things that they run into all the time is things around like incentive, like how do I structure incentives? What do we do with this thing if it actually ends up having some viability? Do we try to operate it outside of the you know inside of the mothership? It seems like it is sort of the except, very much the exception and not the rule that anything that they kind of identify as being potentially viable, they would, you know, kind of spin out into its sort of whole, you know, its its own sort of thing that has investors that you know include them, but but involve others and that kind of stuff. How did uh, at least in in your case, uh, maybe not, maybe this isn't how it's handled generally, but what does the process look like for kind of making the decision to spin something out of X? At least, or, or what was it like for, for you? And was that a deliberate thing in terms of do they do they do they already think that way to try to align incentives with you as a as kind of the the, the person running it, or um, is it just sort of more of a organic thing that just sort of happened? Like how, how what was that process like? I guess. Yeah. So I I would say that similarly to how X is like very open about what. Uh, industry or technology or sort of like what projects mm-hmm. come to be. <laughs> there's yeah. not a lot of guidelines. Also, there's so much freedom around what is the best path for a given type of business to take. Yeah. And so that was wonderful because, because it meant that as we learned more about this opportunity with geothermal, we weren't, we didn't need to pigeonhole it. Right. into a specific type 
type of organization. And the thing that, that we saw that made it clear that it actually was a business well suited to being a startup. I think two things. One is like we could, it was possible to launch an off the shelf pilot and learn what consumers wanted and then fairly quickly build a custom product and launch that and then iterate on it. So unlike a project like internet balloons or the self-driving car that take years and years and years of R and D before you can launch it just by nature of the product. This was a product that we could launch right away. And in fact, you wanted to launch it right away because so much of the success of the product would be how quickly can you adapt it to the market and take that feedback into account. And then I would say the other thing is, I think that we were just aware of how different this problem was from the typical problems that Google goes after in the sense that we were installing ground loops in people's yards in upstate New York yeah. and then putting heat pumps in their basements. <laughs> like, yeah. there's, It's just very different in almost every way than what Google's core business is. Right. So there wasn't as much reason yeah. Or like advantage, I guess, to yeah. to keeping it within Alphabet. So all of those things together, it really like convinced the the team, yeah. me and my co-founder, we should make this a startup. And we, when we made the case to X, they were very supportive. And then it was just a matter of structuring it in yeah. a way that sort of like gave Google value for what they had invested sure. and also set the company up for success. Along the same lines, you know, I, you, I know you mentioned that your friends didn't know, <laughs> or they said you had the easiest job in the world or didn't know what you were doing, you know, kind of in that marketing role in a very kind of brief period of time, you went from marketing to kind of product management to now you're, you know, the founder and CEO of a, <laughs> a heating and cooling company in New York. Uh, I know um, it's true. Yeah, like <laughs> what? I guess any any lessons that you learned there around like how to how to make that transition successfully? How that's? I mean, I'm sure it's still you're still kind of in the process because it's been such a compressed period of time. But that's a pretty amazing career progression, you know. Well, thank you. It was certainly it's been. Uh, <laughs> It is a very different job. I will I will acknowledge that. And just to be very honest, like a very difficult transition, yeah. very difficult. Like yeah. I think, I think more than any other thing, the willingness to be out of your comfort zone mm-hmm. and like possibly fail and be really bad at something. <laughs> it's hard to, it's hard to understate how valuable those, those qualities are. Right. And I, I think like anything else in life, you can practice them. And so in the years before Dandelion, I did put myself in situations pretty often where I would take on a challenge that I wasn't sure if I could handle. Almost always, I made it through. Like I wasn't always, it was often uncomfortable. I often had to work super hard. I didn't always I mean, I almost never did perfectly. Right. But like, I think just getting that experience of, of putting yourself in that position and figuring your way out of it. Yeah. It it gives you confidence that 
you'll be fine no matter what happens. And and for me, it like, you know, just to get, make it less abstract. Um, I decided to pursue a master's degree in computer science when I was working at Google Mm because they had a a program where they would pay for education while you were working. Mm -hmm. And it was of course like really hard to balance that full-time job with a master's degree. Yeah. And the computer science master's degree was, it was difficult coursework and I didn't, it, it wasn't like it would come extremely naturally to me either. From, from like a management perspective, I mean, this seems like a pretty, pretty specific type of organization in terms of the talent. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you would probably have a pretty diverse mix of googly type people, you know, like you're certainly your co-founder and that kind of stuff. But then from an implementation perspective, folks that maybe are a little more blue collar or have different kind of backgrounds, um, how have you sort of learned to kind of, from like a leadership and management perspective, uh, kind of guide folks that maybe are, are have very different backgrounds, very different, you know? Um... Yeah, it's a great question. And I don't know that I have a perfect answer to it. But I think whenever you're leading any group of people, you're often going to encounter a lot of diversity as to like why people are there and what motivates them and what their personality is like and mm-hmm. what what style is most effective. The same is true here, though you're right. Like the people at Dandelion, one thing I really love about the company is there's a lot of diversity in, te- in terms of life path and sort of skill set. Yeah, totally. And it's challenging as well because we're geographically spread out. We have headquarters in New York City, but then two warehouses in two different parts of New York and a sales team that you know, meets with homeowners all day at their homes. So a bit spread out. But I do think that what helps us as a company is it's such a mission driven company that it's like one thing that we can all have in common. Yeah. And regardless of whether you're installing heat pumps or meeting with homeowners or writing our embedded software or mm-hmm. managing all of our finances, Um, you can appreciate that the work you're doing is going towards decarbonizing heating. Yeah. And so it's a value that, that we can share. Did it happen organically or was it kind of when you came in, uh, 2X, they were like, you know, you're going to help us surface and validate these opportunities. If one of them ends up being viable, it is sort of expected that either, either we want you to do it, or if you want to do it, we're more than, we're, we're totally happy and excited for you to do that. Was that, was that sort of an explicit approach from the organization or was it, did it happen more organically where it was just like, Hey, you found this thing, you fell in love with it and wanted to kind of have that become the thing that you do. And they happened to be supportive of it. Like how did that piece of it happen? I would say that it was not the expectation at all. So when I was, when I was in marketing, I was like a very junior employee in marketing. Mm -hmm. And then I was in marketing. I have a civil engineering background and a lot of interest in science. So Mm -hmm. I certainly was probably a better product manager, even at that point than marketer. I just hadn't realized that yet. But like, but I recognized that one thing that X was missing at that moment in time was they didn't have a lot of project managers in one particular part of the organization that was coming up with these new projects. 
it was a small team. It was a very small team at that time and sort of still very early. And so I um, realized that if I volunteered to push this project that actually had, it was about, it was a, some research had come out about a way of extracting carbon dioxide from seawater. Okay. And one of the leaders at X was interested in, could you productize that concept? Because carbon neutral fuel would be obviously world changing and a very meaningful innovation. Yeah, so yeah. we wanted to look at like, is it possible? Like, can we evaluate this idea and figure out if we could make carbon neutral fuel? So I just volunteered to push this project forward and to figure it out, like to help, to help this leader evaluate this opportunity. Mm -hmm. And he didn't have anything to lose really by saying yes. So I'm still very thankful that he did give me the chance because I think a lot of people wouldn't have, but he did. He gave me that opportunity to help him evaluate the opportunity, this carbon neutral fuel project. And it just, it's like one thing led to another and, as we were evaluating it and it seemed like a good opportunity, I just continued to sort of push it forward. Mm -hmm. And as the project grew, my role pushing it forward grew until I was able to formalize it. And that's how I made the switch from marketing to rapid evaluator. Okay. And then um, with Dandelion or the project that would become Dandelion, as I played that role of rapid evaluator and then pitched that we spin it out, I had been leading the project project at X and was sort of the natural choice to, to be the CEO of the company yeah. once we spun it out. But it wasn't, yeah, it was more just, I guess, organic. So I would say maybe the takeaway from that was it's very helpful in any organization to figure out what do the leaders of the organization need the most? Mm -hmm. Like what are they most interested in doing? And is there anything that you can contribute to meaningfully? Because yeah. if so, that's what you should do, right? Because yeah. like everyone, every leader just appreciates people who can step up and solve the needs of the organization. Well, this is this is awesome. Um, really, really uh, neat story, and you know, really impressed with the you know, the progress you've been able to make with Dandelion in a really brief period of time. Um, for folks that are curious about, I guess, more either about, you know, what you're up to or, or, or Dandelion is up to, where should I send people? Uh, well, of course, um, following Dandelion on Facebook or going to our website cool. are great places to keep up to date with the company. When are you going to be in Illinois? Are you? <laughs> Illinois would be a great place for I, us. I so agree. Hopefully not too soon. Awesome. Very cool. <laughs> I mean, hopefully not too far from now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I Very would love cool. to go there. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, best of luck and wish you continued success. Thank you so much. It was great speaking with you. My guest today was Kathy Hannon. For more information on how you can transform your own business with technology, visit us at www.digintent.com. And if you love this episode, we'd love a review on iTunes or Spotify or whatever platform you use. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.